0: turn with me in your Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. It is truly a joy to be with you here this morning. Uh, It's especially a joy to be in a G3 Church Network church. Uh, We're delighted to have you as part of our network and uh, am privileged to be here with you. Uh, As Jared mentioned, I work for G3 Ministries and we are are attempting to provide uh, resources that will encourage and equip and edify God's people and churches like this are exactly who we are trying to minister to and are glad to be partnering with as a a network church and uh, we hope to see many of you at upcoming G3 conferences and uh, those are always wonderful times of fellowship and encouragement as well. First Kings chapter 17 and the first verse reads, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. We're going to look this morning at 1 Kings chapter 18 primarily and the very colorful event of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This is a narrative in the Old Testament that's one of the most well-known and colorful narratives in the whole of the scriptures. It's a story we often teach to our children at a young age. It continues to capture our imagination even to this day. But in order to understand the full significance of what happens with the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, we need to just briefly consider the occasion and the purpose of the writing of the book of Kings to set the context for this story in chapters 17 and 18. The books of Kings. Trace events in the life of Israel from the last days of David's reign up through the captivity of Judah. The last two events recorded in Second Kings are after the Israelites had been taken into captivity into Babylon, but there is no record in the books of Kings of return from captivity to Jerusalem. So for this reason, most scholars believe that Kings was written during the time of the Hebrew exile. And as with any written history, the historian of the book of Kings, maybe Ezra or somebody like him, recorded the events and, and had a certain target audience in mind in order to give them some, some particular lessons and in order to answer some specific questions that would have naturally been on the minds of the people as they were in exile in Babylon. And so imagine that you are a Hebrew and that you have found yourself as a captive in pagan lands far from your home. What would be in your mind? What questions would you be asking? Well, you probably would be asking questions like, how did we get here? Why are we in captivity? Have we lost God's blessing? Why are our houses and our cities and our temple in ruin? You probably would be asking the question, will God keep his promises? Has God left us? Well, the people of Israel knew well the covenants that God has made with his people and they would have been wondering, are those covenants now left undone? He had chosen Jerusalem as the place of his dwelling. He had ordained that a temple would be built in which his worship would take place. He had promised to David an everlasting dynasty. And yet now, no son of David sat on the throne. His city lay in ruin. The the temple was in shambles. Had God failed to keep his promises? no doubt they were wondering this but all of those concerns are actually addressed by the same answer and it is the purpose of the books of first and second kings to answer those questions in essence the books of samuel and kings together could be called the rise and fall of the hebrew empire samuel recounts the rise of israel through the reign of david and then kings traces its demise and it's actually exactly because god is faithful to keep his promise that answers the concerns that the people in exile would have been asking as you know god had established an unconditional covenant with david and part of kings is to demonstrate to the people that god will keep his promise to david god will continue the davidic line despite the captivity in Babylonian exile. In fact, the final event recorded in Second Kings 25 is the fact that Jehoiakim, the current living descendant of David's royal line, was released from prison, dined at the king's table, and had his needs met for as long as he lived. This was the historian's way of saying, don't worry, even though we are in exile, even though our city and our temple lay in ruins, God will continue to keep his covenant with David. But although God's covenant with David was unconditional, God's covenant with Moses was conditional. You may remember in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that God had told the people, he had promised the people through Moses if you faithfully obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all of his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So God promised blessings to the people, but those blessings had conditions. The conditions for their prosperity in the land that God had given them was obedience to his commands. And on the other hand, he also proclaimed in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, but... If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And those curses specifically culminate in captivity by their enemies. In essence, the covenant that God made with Moses is exactly what we have taught our children since they were very young. Obedience brings blessing But disobedience brings punishment. And so the book of Kings demonstrates why God kept his promise to punish his people. It traces how Israel slowly fell through religious compromise. This compromise began with David's son, Solomon, who married many foreign wives and allowed pagan worship to permeate the nation. This, of course, as you know, resulted in the split of the nation into the northern and southern kingdoms. And in the north, Jeroboam continued the compromise by instituting syncretistic worship practices, mixing true worship with false worship. His initial intention was never to worship false gods or to forsake the worship of Yahweh, But he knew that if he continued to follow God's commands and allow his people to travel south to Jerusalem to worship, then he may have lost control of his people. And so Jeroboam gave into pragmatism. And he set up his own center of Yahweh worship. And he mixed the worship of Yahweh with pagan worship practices. But God had specifically commanded in his word, that they should not worship like the pagans had worshipped. He said in Deuteronomy chapter 12, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on their high mountains and on hills and under every green tree. He says, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes, to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and worship, God says. God did not want to be worshipped in the same way that the pagans worshipped their gods. He did not want to be worshipped in their places using their altars and their methods. God wanted to be be worshipped only in the ways that he had chose and in the places that he had ordained. But this is exactly what King Jeroboam failed to do when he adapted the pagan worship practices and methods of worship for the worship of Yahweh. And folks, religious syncretism... Mixing true worship with false worship will always inevitably lead to full-blown idolatry, and that's exactly what happens in the nation of Israel. The kings following Jeroboam continued the syncretism that he had established until King Omri, once again disobeying the clear commands of God in the favor of pragmatism, arranged for the marriage of his son Ahab, to the sweet, gentle, honorable, virtuous princess of the neighboring country of Phoenicia, Jezebel. Omri accomplished his goal of peace with Phoenicia through that marriage out of pragmatism. But of course, as a result, Jezebel brings with her to the marriage her unbreakable devotion to the worship of Baal. And so no longer was the northern kingdom of Israel characterized by simply mixing true worship with false worship, as bad as that is, now King Ahab instituted full-blown Baal worship for the first time actually erecting a temple and altars to the pagan deity. And of course the, pagan, the, the people of Israel quickly give in. They had to survive after all. Baal was the god of rain and fertility. The people wanted to be prosperous. They wanted to be comfortable. They wanted their crops and their livestock to grow and their wives to bear children. And worshiping Baal was necessary for that to happen. Surely Yahweh wouldn't mind it. Surely he wouldn't care if in the name of comfort and prosperity, they would offer sacrifices to Baal in addition to their worship of Yahweh. In fact, they would be able to serve uh, serve Yahweh better if they lived in peace with their pagan neighbors and were able to provide materially for their families. That's what they thought. And so it is into this bleak circumstance that the prophet Elijah bursts onto the scene. The only description we have of Elijah is that he was a hairy man who wore a leather belt. So this wild-eyed, hairy prophet, this uncultured man who lived by the stream being fed by birds, bursts unannounced, as we read, into the throne room of Ahab and says, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then he disappears again into the wilderness. And no doubt Ahab and his court probably scoffed at this prediction. Who is this wild fellow out of touch with his time? But then several days go by and no rain. Days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and no rain. And then month after month after month goes by and still no rain. For three years, there is no rain in the land. Crops dry out, animals begin to die of thirst, and then, after three years, God speaks to Elijah and tells him to go and show himself once again to Ahab. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe. In Samaria. And what follows in this chapter then are four confrontations that Elijah has. Four confrontations that culminate in a great worship war and that later would teach the people in exile who are reading the book of Kings some very important lessons. Now keep a couple things in mind as we look at these confrontations. First, Elijah is alone here. He is boldly standing up for Yahweh. He is confronting compromise and idolatry in his culture, and yet he is the only one doing so at the time. And second, remember that to stand up in this way was to put his very life on the line. He has already spent three years on the run He's already given up comfort and security for the sake of the Lord, but now he is running straight into the lion's den, risking everything in the name of confronting sin. And so we find in this chapter first a confrontation that Elijah has with Obadiah. Look at verse 7. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, is, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give me your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet with Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet with Elijah. Now, this man Obadiah is not the minor prophet that we often think of, Obadiah. This is the chief servant of Ahab's court, probably second in command of the whole kingdom. The text tells us here that he greatly feared the Lord. Privately, he continued to worship Yahweh, even in the midst of Ahab and Jezebel's Baal worship. And he had done great things for the Lord. As we read, he even hid Yahweh's prophets from Jezebel. And yet... Obadiah was a bit of a compromiser himself. All of the rest of the God-fearing Jews and Levites had fled to the southern kingdom where they could worship God as he had prescribed. Yet Obadiah had stayed in the north. Later, Elijah says that he is the only faithful, active prophet of Yahweh left in the land. The other prophets are in hiding, and this man, Obadiah, is impotent. He was content to worship God in private, but when it came to standing up against the idolatry of the kingdom, Obadiah let his concerns for his position and prosperity and his fear for his life to prevent him from rightly confronting false worship as he should have. He didn't want to be identified with the crazy counter-cultural servants of God like Elijah. He wanted to peacefully coexist while simply worshiping God in secret. Perhaps he thought he could have more influence over the sinfulness around him if he just kept quiet. But Elijah confronts Obadiah's complacency. He confronts Obadiah and he commands Obadiah that he arrange a meeting with Ahab. And of course, as we read, Obadiah finally complies. And this leads to Elijah's next confrontation, this time with King Ahab. Ahab had been looking for Elijah all across the nation. And so when he sees him, he immediately cries, verse 17, "'Is it you, you troubler of Israel?' To which Elijah correctly replies in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Indeed, as we have seen, this is exactly true. And this was a very poignant lesson that the historian of the books of Kings wanted the people in exile to recognize. Abandoning the commandments of Yahweh and following after false idols is exactly what brought trouble upon them. This is what led to their exile, false worship, not according to what God had prescribed. And in order to drive this lesson home, Elijah proposes a grand contest, a cosmic battle between Baal and Yahweh, between Baal's prophets and the prophets of Yahweh. Look at verse 19. Elijah says, Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now Elijah's choice of Mount Carmel is very interesting for two reasons. First, Mount Carmel lay at the border of Israel and the neighboring nation of Phoenicia, which is Jezebel's native land. This was the perfect location for a contest between the gods of these two nations. But second, Mount Carmel was known for its frequent lightning strikes. So in a sense, Elijah was giving Baal, who is well known to be the god of the storm, the home field advantage. And it is here on Mount Carmel that Elijah has his third confrontation. Look at verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. You see, Elijah recognized that the people of Israel had never initially intended to forsake the true worship of Yahweh. They had simply adopted worship methods of their surrounding culture and had adapted them to the worship of Yahweh. And then they eventually added the worship of Baal merely out of pragmatism. But Elijah proclaimed to them the unpopular truth with clarity and simplicity. You cannot have both. You cannot worship Yahweh using methods that are only fit for the worship of Baal. You cannot worship Yahweh and Baal at the same time. You cannot be a lover of God and a lover of the world at the same time. So, quit limping between these two different opinions, Elijah says to the people, and make your choice. Don't try to be a worshiper of God and a worshiper of the world. You cannot have both. And this then is where Elijah finally sets his sights on the prophets of Baal. Look at verse 23. He says, Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, "O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar that they had made. Here were the prophets of Baal, attempting to worship their false god in the means that were fitting unto him. And notice the character of their worship. One of the central lessons that the author of the book of Kings, I believe, wanted the people in exile to see starkly presented was the difference between the worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh. The difference between how the prophets were worshiping and how Baal, or how Elijah was about to worship the true God, Yahweh. You see, the difference between the worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh was not simply the object of the worship. The worship itself, the character of the worship itself was very different. Sometimes we get the idea that God's concern is only that he is worshipped. How he is, he is worshipped is of no concern. It really doesn't matter. That's what we often think sometimes. In fact, some would go so far as to say that the manner of worshipping the true God does not need to be any different from the worship of false gods. What only matters is that we worship the true God with sincerity. The worship of Yahweh the argument often goes, was simply the same as the surrounding cultures. The only difference was the God being worshipped. Both the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal had temples. Both the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal had altars and sacrifices and priests. The manner was no different. The difference was only the object. We often think that way. But this account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal vividly proves otherwise. Notice, for example, who initiated the worship between Baal and his prophets? The prophets did. They were the ones who were desperately trying to get the attention of their God. Baal had not revealed himself to them. Baal had not given them instructions for how he wanted to be approached. Rather, in their theology, Baal was simply the lord of the land, the lord of the storm, and and so in order to appease him, in order to persuade him to bless them with rain, the prophets of Baal had to do things to please him and meet his needs. They initiated the worship. Notice also the character of their worship. The worship of Baal was characterized by loud, ecstatic cries, by incessing, incessant dancing around the altar. The text literally reads, limping, they limped around the altar, the exact same word that Elijah had used earlier to describe the syncretism of the people. Their worship was characterized by self-mutilation, cutting themselves to the point that the blood streamed into the trenches. And of course, no one answers. There's no fire from heaven, no lightning, not even rain, just silence. And Elijah takes this occasion to mock the futility of this false worship. Look at verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. They cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And as midnight, midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention." And notice how even in this mocking, Elijah reveals another significant difference between Baal and Yahweh. You see, in the theology of Baal, and this is true, by the way, for all false religions outside of Old Testament Judaism and Christianity, in the religion and theology of Baal, the God is part of nature, Baal is limited by time and by space. He has physical needs and he grows weary. But he that watches over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is not part of nature. God transcends nature because he made it. Elijah did not initiate this worship encounter in order to get God's attention or appease him or meet his needs or call God down to him. On the contrary, the true God is always the initiator of worship. God revealed himself in creation God at creation instituted the central worship concepts of a sanctuary and priests and and a garden and atonement and sacrifice. God revealed himself to Adam and Eve. God revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses and to David. And God had revealed himself to Elijah. God always initiates the encounter. Elijah here in this narrative was simply responding to the word of the Lord. He was simply responding to what God had told him to do. And so what does Elijah do? He does exactly what God told him. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. You see, Elijah did not initiate the encounter with God. He simply followed the instructions that God had given to him. Even the fact that Elijah's prayer comes at the time of the offering of oblation is no accident. Elijah approached God at the exact time that God had appointed in his word. And Elijah doesn't use the pagan altar. Rather, Elijah rebuilds the altar of Yahweh that had been torn down. And instead of loud, ecstatic, orgiastic, degrading worship, Elijah simply prays a modest prayer that itself really is not asking for anything that God himself had not already promised. God had initiated the encounter, God had made the promise, Elijah was simply responding to what God had done, and so his prayer is simply based in the covenant promises of God. And immediately God answers, verse eight, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God responds to the promise that he had made that Elijah was simply asking him to do. And it doesn't take a long, drawn-out time of creating the right atmosphere of worship or working up into an emotional frenzy for the fire of God to come down. God had revealed himself to Elijah. God had told Elijah what to do, and all it took was simple obedience in faith, and God proved himself to be the one true and living God. And this is no natural strike of lightning that falls either. This is the all-consuming, white-hot, holy fire of God that falls down from heaven, consuming the offering and the wood and the stones and the dirt and the water, leaving a scorched, black hole in the earth. In verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh. He is God. Yahweh, he is God. And then Elijah continues to do exactly what God says. He enacts what God had commanded long ago in the law in verse 40. He says to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Now imagine again for a moment that you are a Hebrew in exile in Babylon. You are concerned with whether or not God will keep his promises to David. You are wondering how things develop to the point where you are no longer experiencing God's blessings. What would the account of this worship war teach you? Well, it would teach you, first of all, that Yahweh, he is God. If you had any doubt, it would remind you that the Lord, he is God. It would remind you that God has always and will always do exactly as he has promised. He will keep his promise of judgment upon those who disobey his command. Judgment upon those who attempt to worship him in ways that he has not prescribed or in ways that borrow from the pagan worship of the nations surrounding you. Judgment upon those who completely forsake the true God and instead worship false gods. Judgment upon those who compromise out of a desire for prosperity and pragmatism. Judgment for those who refuse to stand up and confront the idolatry around them out of fear that they will lose their comforts or their prestige or their influence or even their lives. God will keep his promise of judgment. And it would teach you that God will ultimately turn the hearts of his people back to him. And even if the worst offender will turn away from his idolatry and will confess that God is Lord and worship him alone, then God will withhold his wrath. It would teach you that God will keep his promises of blessing towards those who obey his commands. It would teach you that the solution to your captivity is turn back to God. Worship him alone. Don't give in to religious compromise and syncretism. Don't bow down to the dominant idols of the culture out of pragmatic desire for prosperity or comfort or influence. And it would teach you that God will ultimately keep his promise that David's royal line will be established forever. This was the message that this account was meant to teach the people of Israel in exile. It was a message of judgment, but it was also a message of hope for those who would draw near to God through the means that he had required. And folks, this is a message that is no different for us today. Because we, like Israel, are a people living in exile. Peter calls us in 1 Peter, sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home. We are living in exile among pagan people who worship false gods, We are a people surrounded by a culture that worships prosperity and immorality. There there might no longer be altars and temples to Baal in our modern civilization, but they are no less a reality. They've just been updated. Now the temples of Baal are called malls and cinemas, and his altars are called televisions and computers. We are a people who have compromisers in our midst, those unwilling to sacrifice their comforts and their prestige and their influence in order to confront the idolatrous culture. And so instead of standing up against the sinfulness of our culture, some of our own people and our own leaders ignore the debauchery, sometimes even embracing it in the name of cultural contextualization and they hide behind their prestigious titles, desiring to earn the respect of the pagan world. We are a people whose worship, like the people of Israel, is often marked by syncretism with pagan worship. Our worship is often characterized by the assumption that we initiate worship, that we need to do things to please God and call Him down, that we need to work ourselves up into an emotional atmosphere of worship in order to experience the manifest presence of God. Folks, we are a people who need this message just as desperately as the people of Israel in exile. Do we not? 2 Kings chapter 17 succinctly diagnoses the cause of Israel's exile when it says in verse 7, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and had feared other gods." and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Folks, this could just as easily describe the growing demise of the evangelical church in 21st century America, could it not? This could just as easily describe the reason that we are impotent And that the spread of the gospel seems to be waning in our own country. And this occurred. Because the people of Jesus Christ had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up out of slavery to sin and death and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations who hate God and his gospel and in the customs that the pragmatic leaders of the church practiced. Folks, we like Israel often follow after the allurements of the culture around us. We often forsake the commandments of the Lord. We like Israel often deserve what is coming to us. But folks, we, like Israel, also have hope. The last verse of 2 Kings assures the people in exile that David's royal descendant is alive and well. But the promise of hope doesn't end there. The very last verses in the Old Testament tie directly to this event as well. In Malachi chapter 4, Verse five, we read this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And 400 years later, an angel appears to a simple priest in the temple and applies this prophecy to a son yet to be born, a son who will be named John. And this son would grow up to be a countercultural hairy prophet in leather, roaming around a river, boldly calling a compromising people to repentance, And this prophet would prepare a way for a descendant of David's royal line, Jesus the Messiah, who is our only hope. And so, folks, the lessons for us today, as people living in exile, are no different from the lessons given to Hebrews in exile. The Lord, he is our God. God has always and will always do exactly as He has promised. He will keep His promises of judgment against those who disobey His commands, those who worship Him in ways that He has not prescribed, those who compromise out of fear of their lives. And God will keep his promise of blessings toward those who obey his command. And so the solution for us is the same for it was for the people of exile. Turn to God. Worship God alone. Don't give in to religious compromise and syncretism. Don't bow down to the dominant idols of our culture out of pragmatic desire for comfort or prosperity or influence. Stand strong against the sinfulness around you. Stand up against the compromise of your fellow Christians, even if it means standing alone, even if it means your standing will be unpopular, even if it means risking your comfort, your security, or your very life. Folks, we need this message today. Let us recommit ourselves this day to remain true and faithful to the pure worship of God's word. Let us not give into the allurements of this world and let us not give in even to the compromise of those who claim the name of Christ. Let us simply be satisfied with trusting in the authority and sufficiency of what God has commanded us in His Word. And let us draw near with true hearts in full assurance of faith, drawing near through the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, drawing near to the presence of God where we can worship Him in spirit and truth where he is uplifted and glorified because we worship him according to what he has commanded. Let us pray.